Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. Bibles now you'd open with me to the book of John the gospel according to John chapter 3 would you stand with me as I read John 3 beginning in verse 22 through the end of the chapter John chapter 3 beginning in verse 22 when I get to verse 36, after that I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and together we will say, thanks be to God, because we are truly thankful for God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim. Because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Speak, O Lord. Speak for your servants are listening. And so give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to this church 
through your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. May be seated. There's a conundrum that we face in our world. Many of us have experienced a question that disturbs us, bothers us, gets under our skin. It's a question that's been asked for a long time. It's not a new question. It's a question that bothered Job. Do you remember Job in the Bible? Job and his three friends, Job suffered greatly. His three friends tried to correct him, encourage him. But the conversation that Job and his three friends were having was revolving around this question. Why do the wicked prosper and why do the righteous, like Job, suffer? Have you ever asked that question? Have you ever experienced this world? Why does it look like the wicked and evil in this world get off scot-free? But the righteous, the good, they suffer. That was Job, wasn't it? Who was like Job? In fact, the accuser came to God there at the beginning of the Job, and, and God said, if you consider my servant Job, there's no one like him. <laughs> that question revolves around an understanding of God that is based on action and reward or action and punishment. You live this way, certain things that are good, you'll be rewarded. You live a certain way, you do bad things, you will be punished. Job spends a lot of time accusing God while his friends seek to defend God. But it's all based on a faulty premise. The question is wrong. The question is not a good question. Why? What do we know about God and what do we know about God's love? God's love acts in such a way that it is beyond the question of merit. Who is deserving of God's love? God shows his love for us when? When we were deserving, when we had done enough good things in this life to deserve his love. God demonstrates his own love towards what, us in that what? While we were still sinners. While we were the undeserving, while we were the poor, while we were the wicked, Christ died for us. There is Job Standing before God, 
And the Lord answered Job. And he says this to Job. Who is it that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. That's what God says to Job. <laughs> you hear what God says? Job, you're speaking a lot of words, but you don't got any knowledge. <laughs> and he says, gird up your loins, Job. Get ready. Answer me this question. And this is quite actually an absurd statement if you think about it. How will a man give God an answer? How will man instruct God and tell God something that he doesn't know? How will the creature show that he knows something the creator doesn't? It's preposterous. How much, think for a moment with me, because the Lord then begins to go to Job and he talks about all the things in creation. Job, do you understand this about creation? Job, do you understand that about creation? How much do we, in our modern minds, think that we know about creation? I mean, all of the scientific advances, what is it that we don't know about creation? And I think, what God says to Job still holds for us today, those who might think we know a lot about creation. In fact, what don't we know about creation? God says to Job, Job, you know nothing about the great phenomena in creation. You think you can explain the creator or claim to know the creator's mind? And people today who think that they can explain the creation think that they can dispense with the Creator. But what is that? And what is it in those who think that they can explain God? It's the creature talking back to the Creator. Now, I don't know what it's like in your house, maybe what you experienced growing up what it might have been like with your parents or now with your children. But one thing that's not tolerated in our house is talking back, kids talking back to parents. That's alarm bells going off when that happens. Sometimes it causes me as a father to bring out one particular tool in my tool belt in dealing with my children. When I say something to them like, you will not talk to my wife in that way. Not your mom, my wife. That's, that's what's primary in this house, my relationship with my wife. You won't talk to my wife in that way. A child talking back to a parent sometimes can make sparks fly. 
And it reminds me even of, of what one comedian said about his children. I brought you into this world, and I could take you out. It's infinitely more serious and more horrendous for us as creatures, as mankind, those who have been formed from the dust, who are but merely a piece of pinched off clay, to think we have the right, the gall, the nerve to talk back to God. Yet this is what happened in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. They thought they could be God. They thought they could stand where God stands. They thought they could be the determiner of what was good, provide for themselves what was good, be independent of their creator. It's the arrogance that still lodges in the human heart today. Could Job answer his creator? No. All he could do in the end was lay his hand over his mouth and repent in dust and ashes. Similarly, can we answer our Creator? What's interesting is that in the Gospel according to John, we are told at the very beginning, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Who is that talking about? It's talking about the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is the eternal Word. This is the Word incarnate. This is Jesus Christ. All things were made through Him, and without Him, without Jesus, was not anything made that was made. He is the agent of creation. He created. Yes, we who were made through Him, how often are we ready and willing to question Him, to question Christ? How many are ready and willing to put Christ on trial again? Yet this is the problem that was confronting John's disciples. Jesus and his disciples were baptizing in one location. While John the Baptist and his disciples were baptizing in another. Who should the people go to? Should they go to John or should they go to Jesus? Which ministry is better? It appears that there may have been some bitterness or resentment among John's disciples over Jesus' ministry. In fact, they said, all are going out to Jesus, John. Don't you care? Aren't you concerned your popularity is diminishing? True enough, what they were experiencing was a great change, a transition from the age of promise and anticipation of the Messiah to the age of fulfillment. All the promises find their yes and amen in Him. So there was a transition that was happening. And remember, we are still answering the question, who does Jesus think that he is? And what gives him the right? What gives him the right to establish this ministry, and particularly going back to what they were discussing with this Jew, what gives him the right to change this idea of purification among the Jews? They had this law of purification. that came to them from the Old Testament. How to be clean before the Lord. How is it that this can be changed? What gives Jesus the right to do this? Who does Jesus think that he is anyway? 
And what gives him the right to do what he does? Simply put, it's because Jesus has authority. That's what we saw last week. Jesus has the authority as the bridegroom to whom the bride belongs. This idea of authority is not just a doctrinal truth to fill our heads, but it is an applicable truth to penetrate into our hearts. When we say Jesus Christ has authority, that means something for the way that you live. And so this morning, particularly zeroing in on verses 31 through the end, we see this next point. So on your bulletin you have this outline if it's helpful. Last week we saw Jesus has authority as the bridegroom to whom the bride belongs. This week Jesus has authority as the one sent from heaven to whom God has given all authority. Jesus has authority as the one sent from heaven to whom God has given all authority. These first verses, in verses 22 through 30, we've seen a a reply from John. John's been speaking, John the Baptist, that is, has been speaking, speaking back to his disciples, telling them certain truths. And now when we get to verse 31, we have a transition back to the Apostle John, so the author of the book. Now he's giving us some uh, explanation, some explanatory notes, some commentary even on what John had just said. And so here, the author of the book of John, John, begins to contrast Jesus and John the Baptist. Jesus, he says, is the one who comes from above. Or as he states later, who comes from heaven. What about this one who comes from above or who comes from heaven? It is right that he comes from above because he is above all. He is superior to everyone. He is supreme over everyone and everything. He is the one who's come from the very dwelling place of God. A place of perfect unity and fellowship with the Father. John, on the other hand, is of the earth. He belongs to the earth. And so he speaks in an earthly way. This is not to put John the Baptist down. It's just saying that he has a different origin than Jesus. Jesus' origin is from above. It's from heaven. And that's what makes him above all. If Jesus is from above, if Jesus is from heaven, if that is his origin, then we should listen to his testimony. Jesus bears witness to particular truths and divine claims that must be taken seriously because, what does it say here? He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. What is it that Jesus has seen and heard? Jesus has seen and heard heavenly realities and divine truths that our puny minds have difficulty comprehending. There is no better testimony than the testimony from the eternal Son who has been with the eternal Father. 
And think about that for a moment. Jesus has seen things and he has heard things. You've seen things and heard things, haven't you, in your life? You've experienced things. You know things. Your capacity to see things and hear things is not like Jesus' capacity to see things and hear things. I confess this morning that I am a wimp. There are times when I watch things on television that make me wince. Like if a character is experiencing something embarrassing on a television show, I just I can't bear to watch. It's just too painful. I don't, just don't like it. Sometimes I, I, I even, this is how wimpy I am, I cover my eyes. And my kids try to like pry my hands off of my eyes to make me watch. And I'm like, no, I can't do it. I can't bear to watch it. It's just too uncomfortable. It's just too painful. Our capacity to see and to hear certain things can only bear so much. Jesus' capacity to see and hear things is limitless. It is infinite. What is it that Jesus has seen and heard? He's seen and he's heard divine, intimate fellowship with God the Father. He's experienced this glory of heaven that we would not be able to experience. We cannot see God and live. Much less what happens when we would hear God, we would be trembling underneath our seats. Yet Jesus' capacity to see and to hear certain things is so great because he has been with the one, God the Father, who is the great God above all, who dwells in unapproachable light. And so with Jesus' capacity to see things and hear things, that's not like our capacity to see things and hear things. Shouldn't we listen to his testimony? Shouldn't we hear what he has to say? Shouldn't we believe what he has to say? But there's a problem, isn't there? With this great testimony, testimony that comes from God himself, from the very throne room of heaven, there would be those who would not receive his testimony. I'm not going to believe that. I'm not going to believe Jesus' testimony, what Jesus says. I'm going to reject it. This is what John has been telling us in his gospel all along. Jesus came to his own, his own people. And his own people did not receive him. Even though he was the word of God, even though he is the creator, even though in him is life and the life is the light of men, even though he is God, he is still despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Perhaps, perhaps the reason why this lack of reception of his testimony is because the hardness of hearts that are bound by unbelief 
and sin. What Jesus bears witness to, what he's seen and what he's heard, are the greatest, most beloved, most important truths, eternal truths, that one could ever hear. Yet there are those, and there are many, who will not receive his testimony. But some do. While generally speaking, no one receives his testimony. There are some. Look at verse 33. Here's a glimmer of hope. Whoever receives his testimony, so there must be some that do receive him, that do believe on him. There are some who receive his testimony. Sets his seal to this, that God is true. That's amazing. There are some who will receive Jesus' testimony. The great things that he has seen and that he has heard, these amazing truths, some will receive his testimony, and when they do, they set their seal. What is that? It's a seal of authenticity. Like when you buy something, usually you want it to be authentic. You want it to be real. If you're going to buy a Rolex watch, you want it to be a Rolex watch. And if you get it for $10, it's probably not a Rolex watch. Whoever receives Jesus' testimony sets his seal of authenticity. So that's believers who are setting their seal of authenticity to this particular truthful statement. God is true. There is a God. And he is true. He is truthful. He is the true one and only living God. I'm setting my seal to this authenticity that God is the one who is the true God who is to be listened to, who is to be followed, who is to be obeyed. Now, I don't know if it's shocked us yet. (laughs) Who are you? Who are you? Who am I? That we could set our seal, a seal of authenticity to say that God is true. Who are we to do that? Who am I? I'm nobody. Like, like, like you think about the, the, the Rolex watch that you're going to buy, if it has a seal of authenticity on it, you want someone who has the expertise to say, yes, this is a real Rolex. You're not getting ripped off. Are we that, are we that person? To set our seal on something so high, God is true? How can we do this? It would seem impossible. It would seem too magnificent for us. But we have been given this privilege, if we have received Jesus' testimony and set our seal on this fact that God is true, how is it that we receive this privilege? Because 
We've been resurrected from the dead. That's how. We are resurrected people from the dead, then who set their seal to this, that God is true. Where do I get that? Look here, this is amazing. (laughs) So, this next verse, verse 34, is going to explain what he has just said. So the word therefore, or because. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Because he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. So, let's break it down. Whom has God sent? Well, God has sent Jesus Christ into the world, right? He who is from above has come down to earth. He's descended from heaven. God has sent his son, and what does Jesus do? Jesus utters the words of God. What Jesus says, God says. So these are divine words. These are words of authority. These are words that come with command. These are words that are to be listened to. Jesus utters the words of God because, again, he, and I think this is referring back to God, he gives the Spirit without measure. That is, he has given Jesus Christ the Spirit without measure. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the Spirit-anointed Messiah. In fact, go back here just for one moment. Isaiah 42, Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42. There's other places you could go, like Isaiah 11, Isaiah 61. I'm just going to 42. Isaiah 42, 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, what? I have put my spirit on him. And this spirit that... The Lord God puts upon his son, the Messiah, is a spirit anointing that is without measure and without limit. In the Old Testament, the spirit would come on the kings of Israel. The spirit would come on prophets who spoke the word of God. The spirit would come upon the priests who would serve in the tabernacle and the temple. But guess what? Whenever the spirit came upon them, it was limited. It was measured. But now Jesus, here he is, the final prophet, priest, and king is the one who has the Spirit without measure. And so let's bring these two things together. He's the one who utters the words of God because he has the Spirit upon him without measure. And what do we know that the Spirit does? The Spirit is the life-giving Spirit. Do you remember that from the beginning of John 3? The one who has been born of the Spirit, the Spirit gives life. So here is the Spirit-anointed Messiah who is speaking the words of God, uttering the words of God. And what happens when the Spirit-anointed Messiah speaks the word of God? People come to life. People are raised from the dead. 
Jesus says to someone like Lazarus, come forth. And what does Lazarus do? He comes forth out of the grave. How is it that you and I can set our seal of authenticity to the fact that God is true because we've been raised from the dead by the Spirit-anointed Messiah who has spoken his word into our lives so that by hearing we might have faith in him. That's, that's one of the two alternatives. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. The Father loves the Son with such an immense and amazing love that He's given Him all authority. So, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever puts their faith and trust in this Son has eternal life. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Do you see what John does there? You see how he, he that's a sleight of hand. Notice the difference. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. What do you expect the next statement to be? Whoever does not believe. That's what we would expect, right? But that's not what John says. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. I think it fascinating there that John does not say, whoever does not believe. And I think it also very interesting that John doesn't start with obedience, does he? He doesn't say, whoever obeys the Son has eternal life. Why doesn't John say that? Why doesn't John start with that? Obey. Obey Jesus. That's where I'm going to start. If you obey Jesus, you will have eternal life. This is where so many could go wrong. Christianity is not about doing more or trying harder. Christianity is not first and foremost about being an excellent rule keeper. Christianity is first and foremost casting yourself and your heart and all that you are on a Savior who died in your place to give you life. When you believe in Jesus, you will obey. And you'll want to obey. I want to obey Jesus. Look at what he's done for me. Look at how much he's given me. I want to obey him. But whoever does not obey him, that's the problem. There are those who are called sons of disobedience. That is, the life of the unbeliever. You are a son of of disobedience. That's all you can do is disobey. And you do it continuously. That's the idea here. Whoever does not obey, guess what? It's a continual disobedience. Whoever does not obey the Son, the one who continues to rebel against the Son, the one who continues to say, what gives Jesus the right? Will not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him.
there are some things that we might like to cut out of God's word. How many of us would like to cut out that little last phrase? Let's not talk about wrath. Let's not talk about an angry God. If we were to start cutting out all the places in God's word where it talked about his wrath, we would have a mutilated Bible. But more detrimentally, we'd have a mutilated God. We think the wrath of God so awful, so horrendous. And, and, and I wonder why sometimes we struggle with the wrath of God. And as I thought about that, this week in particular, I wonder if the wrath of God is difficult for us to grasp and accept because we don't truly understand the love of God. The Father loves the Son. What kind of love is that? That's a love that you and I don't know. That's a perfect love. Think about that for a second. A perfect love. You have never, ever loved perfectly. I have never loved perfectly. And by anyone in this world, you've never been loved perfectly. God's love is a perfect love. Always selfless. Always sacrificial. Always for the good and the benefit of others. God's love is unlike anything that you've ever known in your entire life. And if we can for one moment grasp a tiny drop of God's perfect love and what people do then when they say, no, 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 I don't want that love. I'm not going to accept that love. I don't want that love. Then, maybe, we would start to understand God's wrath. We all as sinners are deserving of God's wrath. The good news is that Jesus Christ bore God's wrath in our place on the cross. Jesus extinguished the wrath of God that we deserved on the cross. He removed it so now there is not even one ounce of wrath that we deserve or we receive from God. Now, all that we know, all that we experience is God's abundant 
abundant grace that He's given to us in our lives. Think about that for a moment. What must I do so that the wrath of God does not remain on me? What must I do so that the wrath of God does not remain on me? Think of those words there for a second. The wrath of God remains, abides, dwells upon him. Contrasted to the one who's in Christ where now we abide, remain, dwell in Christ and he in us. How awful are these words that the wrath of God remains, abides, dwells on him. What must I do so that the wrath of God does not remain on me? Must I weep? All of the tears that you might ever cry will not extinguish God's wrath. Must I try harder or do more? All of your effort will never extinguish God's wrath. Repent and rend your heart. Believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved from the wrath of God. This is why Jesus has come to save sinners. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. And with his own blood he bought her and for her life he died. Father, I pray that we would see and hear much today of Christ's glory as our Savior. We've heard much of the goodness of what we need to know for salvation, to be saved from the wrath of God. We've heard much of what we need to know for life and for godliness. But let us remember, we have not heard everything. You've given to us exactly what we need. And what you've given us to know, salvation through Jesus Christ, is something that we marvel at. something that we stand in awe of, something that we praise you for and say, thank you, thank you, thank you. Father, I pray that there would be no one here of whom it's said the wrath of God is remaining upon them, but that today they would put their faith and trust in Jesus, that today they would be able to say, Because of my faith in him, I have eternal life. And so fill them with your eternal and complete joy. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.